Dwelling Place Church has a temporal place. We have a temporal resting place right now. And if you know our story, uh, I'll begin uh, sharing a little bit. We were over on 192, uh, 4730 West Erlo Bronson Memorial Highway, Kissimmee, Florida, 34746. Um, and we were over at a building, a location where we were leasing, where we were renting, and we were there for six years. And over those six years, the, the owner of the building, uh, every time it came time for us to renew our lease, the owner would say, do you want to buy the building? Do you want to buy the building? And, and it, it would just take two seconds to look into our bank account and say, yeah, no, I would love to, but. And so even as a church ministry, I would say we were living from paycheck to paycheck in that our monthly expenses and our monthly bills um, from our offerings and for everything that we were given, we could only live one month at a time. We only had security for one month. And so we thank God because when we transitioned to that building, the first years were, were a struggle. And I remember myself and Pastor Tanya made a phone call to the owners and said, we understand if you cannot keep us here. It does not sit well with us that we struggle. It does not sit well with us that we can't afford to be here as the pattern was. We had fallen at one point three months behind, three months behind. And it's not that they complained, but uh, to make that phone call and to reach out to the owners, I cringed and it hurt so much. And it was not ever part of our, you know, natural culture to be okay with that. It's never been okay. And so we called the owners And we said, it's okay if you have to ask us to leave. We want to be good tenants. We also want to be good representatives of what God has given us. And we're not going to ask you um, for any favors. And I remember that conversation well. And the owners told us a short story about how when they first started their very own business and how they struggled. And how they too were in a very similar situation where they were behind and it was so hard for them to to catch up and whoever they were doing uh, business with and in their same similar struggle, the owner told them, I'm going to give you guys mercy. I'm going to give you guys a chance. And in that mercy that they received in time, they were able to get on their feet. And so on that phone call, they tell us that story and they tell us this. They say, we would not be in the place where we're at today if we had not received the mercy. Today, we want to extend that same type of mercy and grace that was given to us. And they believed that we could do it. And so we went back to our church and we explained the grace that we have received. And the church coming together and responding to the need. We were able to do a campaign, a campaign that we set a goal to raise $25,000. <laughs> My goodness, I couldn't believe that we even were saying that. And within three months, we raised over $30,000. And because of that, I couldn't believe it. I said, this little old church raised third. Where did all that money come from? Someone had money hidden under the mattress or something. So you guys were holding out this whole time? I believe that God saw our, hurt, our hearts. We sacrificially gave. And because of God, that, God multiplied as he is able to. And so after that, we were able to catch up. Um, and come up to date with our, uh, with our rent and our things. And we were able to uh, support 
missions trip, we were able to secure our rent for a couple of months. And after that, we never looked back and we were never late again for the glory of God. And so every year, the, the owner would say, you want to buy the building? You want to buy the building? I said, we're still not there yet. We caught up and we were able to do a little bit of things, but we're not there yet. And so eventually it came to the point where someone wanted to purchase the building. And so the owner came to me like, do you want to buy it? No. He's like, well, someone is. And so sadly and with, you know, even with heavy hearts, they asked us to leave. Not because we were bad tenants, but because it was always in the owner's uh, desire to sell the building. And so we knew that that time would come. We knew that time would come. And so we had faith in the transition. We trusted God. And we had our last service there over a year and a half ago. And God led us to this small little campgrounds. And so we, we share or we relate a lot to the story of the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And God did have a promised land for them, but they had a temporal place of his presence found in the tabernacle. And so they had a wilderness journey that God had to do a lot of work on them before he could bring them into a promised land. And I think that's a story that we all should relate to. We should know that there is an ideal place of God's presence that he has for all of us. There is a place that flows with milk and honey. But before you can step into that place, God desires that you step into his presence because it's dangerous to go into a place that God has for you if you don't have his very presence in you. We will only do harm in the place. And so um, we believe that in our tabernacle season, we are following the cloud of his presence, trusting him until he brings us into that promised place. And so he's done much work on us, right, Dwelling Place Church? He's done much work on us, and the story is too long to tell what's happened to us in the past year and a half at that beautiful campground. But we thank God for the owners of the camp as well. Um, it is okay for them to, you know, for the sanctuary not to be available. Every year they have an annual camp meeting where their board of directors host a, uh, a two-week service for them. And so during that time, we know that we can't be there, and so... Pastor Yvonne and Ed, last year, the same time, opened up their sanctuary. And so it's already been a year, and we're glad to be back. Uh, next week, the, the, the camp, uh, their camp meeting continues, but they have asked me to be the speaker of their camp meeting. And so with that invitation to me, they can't invite me without all my kids. <laughs> and so what that means is that we, the Dwelling Place Church, Pastor Yvonne and, Yvonne, uh, Pastor Yvonne and Ed, if you want to, Living Word Church, join us over next week at the camp. Uh, it'll be their service. They'll be doing worship. I'll just be the guest preacher at the camp. It'll feel like home for us. So uh, that's what's taking place next Sunday. Amen? But we're on a journey, and I believe God has a, has a message for us. And it was probably now almost two months I preached a sermon called Possess the Promise. And, 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 and we spoke towards our story. And in that, in that sermon, we revealed that we feel God has showed us a promised place. And, and, and that place is the building that we just were asked to leave. It's amazing that in a year and a half being out of the building, it's, it's there, 
We were asked to leave because they sold it to someone. No one has ever gone into that building. And so we believe that God is doing something, and he has put it on our hearts that that is the place of promise. He, ha- he allowed us to taste and see. And by asking us to leave, remember every time the owner said, would you like to buy the building? And every time I looked in the bank account, I was like, no, no, no. Well, now we look back into the bank account, and there's over $150,000 in there, praise God. And just to be honest with you, I have no shame in this. The owner is willing to give us $100,000 towards our down payment. Someone praise God for that. These are not lies. I have our realtor, Ryan, right here with us. And we've been, we've, been, we've been going, doing, the negotiating. There's a lot of hard work being done behind the scenes. And so we're finally in a place where we, we feel that we're positioned. But in that sermon, Possessed the Promise, we spoke about this, that a promise given by God, hear me, a promise given by God is, does not mean it's a promise handed. A promise given, spoken by God, does not mean it's a promise handed. And so we looked at Joshua and the nation of Israel. God tells him, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Be strong and be courageous. Wherever your feet step, I have given. Wherever your feet step, I will give. I will give you this land. In other words, if you're willing to take steps, if you're willing to fight in ways I call you to fight, if you're willing to possess what I have given you, then you can taste and you can have it. So God will give something in word. You must take possession of what he has said. So God gives. We must learn to take. And sometimes that taking means walking in faith. That's right. They had to walk and march around the walls of Jericho just because God said, I give you this land. Didn't mean they got to stay home. And then all of a sudden the Canaanites came with keys and said, go ahead. They still had to take it in faith, take it in obedience, take it in holiness, take it in sanctification, take it in prayer, take it in walking in faith. So today, in a very similar way, I want to speak about our story. And I pray whether you're from the Dwelling Place Church or you're from Living Word Church, this word is able to transcend our church transcend our building. The word of God is alive. It's the, uh, Paul said in, in, in the Corinthian letters that we have the stories of Israel as examples for us. And so we, we, we look at these stories and we relate to them. And so for everyone who thinks that the, that the, the Old Testament is old, we're wrong. The stories are today for us living examples So as you go through your Bible plan and you die in Leviticus, I challenge you to keep on going. And when you get to Numbers and you say, I don't like Numbers, know that the original title of the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. There's a better title. You'll enjoy it now. So survive Leviticus, get into the wilderness, and then you'll make it a Deuteronomy. And when you say Deuteronomy, what's that? I don't know, no dudo. It just means second law. It's it's where the, the, the law that was given to Moses in Exodus on the mountain is, 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 is just restated a second time 
before they enter the promised land 40 years later. So it's good that you hear things more than once. It's okay for us to go to these stories again and again. They prepare us for us to enter into that place that God actually does have for us. You don't want to take and possess a place that God has for you if you don't know the story. If you don't have the example to learn from. If you don't have the story to keep you firm. Amen? So let us read. So we're not going to say the Old Testament, okay? We're going to say the Hebrew Scriptures. That'll help us. So we're going to open up the Hebrew Scriptures to the book of the prophet Haggai. How many read Haggai this week? <laughs> Someone said, that's a book? <laughs> In our Bibles, God bless you, buddy. I love you. And oh, in our, in our, in our Bibles, they would call him a minor prophet. Old Testament minor prophet. <laughs> Let's change. These are the Hebrew scriptures, and the only reason why in English we call him a minor prophet because his book was short. But it doesn't mean that it was insignificant. The only difference between major and minor prophets are how long, how many chapters they have, which makes no uh, implication on how significant and substantial they are. So if you say, you know, I'm going to read the major prophets before I read the minor prophets because they're major and those are minor. The only difference is the book, the chapter, the number, okay? So they're not minor in any way. Book of Haggai is actually significant. Towards the entire story of this people. So let's just read chapter 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version today. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 14. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 from the English Standard Version. Amen. Thank you for standing. Who did? If you want to join us, please do. We read his name in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the church says, Thank you, Father, for your word. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is not the same Joshua, okay? This is hundreds of years later. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is the word coming from God to the prophet Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you have harvested harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You cloth yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages 
does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Minor? Would you say this is a minor word from God? I would say this is substantial. I would say this is a major word of God. <laughs> then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Is there a remnant that will build Yahweh's house? Just a question. Is there a remnant? Of Yahweh that will build his house. I know you're working on yours. But is there a remnant that will go to the hills and get the wood and build Yahweh's house that he might find pleasure so that he will be glorified? That he will be glorified. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And they came and they worked on the house of Yahweh, their Elohim. That's what that read. And they came and they worked on the house of Yahweh, their Elohim. Amen? I want to preach to you from the title, From Glory to Glory. You may be seated. Thank you so much. From glory to glory. As we can see, this is not a minor word. It is a major word. And so now we're going to go back in time. If you go to the Dwelling Place Church, you know, I, I, I pin drop you somewhere on a timeline in the middle of something. And it's my desire for us to go back so that then we could go to the future again. Amen? So we're going to do a back to the future. Amen? I want to start out by saying that places are important to God. Amen? I want to start out by saying that places are important to God. And that the creation narrative is not mere Hebrew ancient cosmology. When we read Genesis 1, but in fact, more importantly, it's a story of creator, Elohim, Yahweh, God, creating a place and an atmosphere for his creation, man. 
And so when we read the story of creation, it's more than ancient Israel cosmology. But on a deeper level, it is about Elohim. It is about God. It is about Yahweh, the Lord, creating an atmosphere, creating an environment for his creation, man. Spaces, places are important to God. Amen? I want to say that man requires a certain, a certain type of place. Man requires a certain type of atmosphere. In order for him to be nourished, in order for him to be rejuvenated, in order for him to be filled, in order for him to have peace, man requires a certain type of environment. Man requires a, serpent, a certain type of space in order for him to reach his potential and in order for him to have influence, in order for him to have impact, in order for him to transform the rest of the world around him, in order for him to conquer, in order for him to advance, in order for him to, to, uh, to multiply, man first needs a place that he can call home. Every man, every woman needs a place, a home, a safe place, a place of peace, a place of rest. They need that place first in order for them to fulfill the work that God is calling them, in order for them to expand, in order for them to take on more territory, in order for them to be an influence, in order for them to impact, in order for them to touch and transform and, and, and reach their community and go to all these places. First, man needs a place. For himself, first woman needs a place for herself that she can call home, a place where she can be and he can be filled, a place where she and he can drink, a place where he and she can eat, a place where he and she have safety, a place of refuge, a place of sanity, a place of peace, a place of delight. Man needs a place of paradise first. Before he can go out and make an influence somewhere else. God cares about places. And so when you look at creation, if you just think it's about ancient Hebrew cosmology, you could get lost. And it's an awesome rabbit hole to go down. Many have gone down that journey. I have. But more importantly, underneath, the message is about creator God creating a heaven and an earth, right? Creating a space for man to put him in for nourishment, for fulfillment, for peace, for sanity. And then he's called out. And to take that peace in his home, that place of refreshing, that place of life, and then put it into the world. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. I want to read from the English Standard Version once again. It says this very familiar passage of scripture for us. It says, then the Lord God, then Yahweh Elohim formed, look, the man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And some other translations, man became a living soul. Look at this, verse 8, very significant. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And so we know that there's an account of the first five days where God is uh, separating light from darkness. He's separating the waters below from the waters above. He's creating a firmament and he's creating land and he's putting, he's speaking life into it. And then in his creation, he starts to fill the spaces that he just separated. He, he, he separates light from darkness. Then he separates the waters and, 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 he, and he creates the heavens or the skies. And then he creates the land and then he creates vegetation and he creates fruits and he creates all these trees. And this is a beautiful picture, right? You have the land, you have the sky, you have the land, and then he also has the waters. And so what we then see is after he creates the space for the heavens, the skies, and after he creates the space, he separates that with the waters. And then after that, he calls the dry ground to appear from the waters. What God does first is he creates a space. God creates a place. And then from there, when you read the creation narrative, you see that then he calls the birds to fill the skies. He does not put the birds to fly out in darkness. He creates a space, an expanse. He creates a firmament. And from there, then he fills the firmament with the birds. He gives them a safe place. He gives them uh, their own dominion. He gives them their own realm. He gives them their own peace. And then he fills it. And then the waters, he separates. And then he puts the ocean and the marine life. He puts the, wa the, the, the marine life in the waters. He creates the water. The waters are there first, and then the marine life come. Can you imagine if, the, if those marine life started on the land? They wouldn't make it. And so he prepares the waters, and then he puts the marine life in the waters. And then he creates the dry ground. The dry ground appears, and then it's fruitful. It multiplies. It's wonderful. It has herb yielding, uh, herb yielding seed inside itself. This is great. And then he creates man from that same dust. Of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. And so what do you see is the pattern here? There's a place for every creation. He gives man, he gives man the earth for him to have dominion. He gives the marine life waters so that they can have dominion there. He gives the bird the sky so that they can have dominion there. He, God cares about places. He doesn't leave it how we read it in the opening chapters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That is the picture. That is the image that we see. Without form, darkness upon the face of the deep. It's a wild wasteland. God does not put birds into that. God does not put sea creatures into that. God does not create land animals on that, and he's definitely not going to put his man on that. He takes care of the place first, and after it is fruitful, after it is flowing with life, then he puts his creations into the place, into the space. Places, spaces are important to God. Can you imagine if he just created animals in the midst of darkness, man, in, in, in the midst of, 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 of deep waters, and no one knew what was their domain. No one knew. Can you imagine if man just got dunked into the deep waters, and all of a sudden there was a whale washed up on the dry ground? Monkeys hovering in the sky everyone this would be madness no one would know their job no one would know their role and also none of them could fulfill their potential if they're in the wrong space potential can only be filled when man has his safe place it is God's desire that you have your safe place 
and is dangerous when we don't have a safe place and then we try to function in the world. This is why the world's in chaos because a man has not found his safe place with God. This is dangerous when the church loses its safe place with God. Then he tries to go out into the world and it's chaos. The, the crazy world that we live in is because man has not found his space and then he's trying to manifest, he's trying to influence, he's trying to work, he's trying to make money and you know what happens? We get filled with greed, with power and we're crazy and we step on people. That is an earth upside down and God cares about spaces. And so God's people will always have a promised land. God's people will always. And so what happens? We read in Genesis 2, verses 7 to 8, that yes, God forms man from the dirt of the earth. But in verse 8, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is not just a garden. Eden is a territory. Eden is a dominion. And yes, there's a garden. God plants a garden in Eden in the east is what the Bible says. Ah, so Eden is bigger than we thought. Eden is bigger than we thought. Eden is a territory. Eden, you can consider it a spiritual county on earth. And in the spiritual county, there is a garden. And that garden becomes the pinnacle of the territory of Eden. And the Bible says that God takes man from the dust of the earth and then he places him where? He places him in the pinnacle of the garden. And when we read about Eden, what is Eden? I want to go to Eden. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one has ever found it. No historians, no archaeologists, no one. Throughout history, we can't find it. Where did Eden go? What's well, interesting when you think, when you look at the word Eden, Eden, when we go into translations of the word Eden, Eden has a translation of being delightful. It's a delightful place. Eden also has uh, the definition of being paradise. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and there was a thief next to him? And then he said, today you will be with me in Paradise. You know what it was actually translated? Today you will be with me in Eden. That's, that's what he said. Today you will be with me in Eden. But when we translate paradise there, we also know that it has the connotation of what? Today you will be with me where? In heaven. So paradise is Eden, but Eden, Jesus God said, today you will be with me there, referring to eternal life where? In heaven, in the pinnacle of the garden, we read in Genesis chapter 2 that in the garden, in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. Let me tell you this. This is not any ordinary garden. I know you like the botanical gardens and they're wonderful and there's, different, there's, there's a bunch of gardens. Nice. But there's something more in this garden. There's something more supernatural than what we thought. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a tree that if you eat from it, it gives you life. Come on now. There's, 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 you can't just go outside and grab the, 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 the best fruit tree out there. It's not going to give you eternal life. So there's something special about it. It actually says that there was a river that split into four riverheads that went to four different places. And it said that that river brought stream and brought life to the rest of the garden. And look. This is where God forms man. 
And it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he planted the man who he had formed. So God will plant a place and then plant man in the place. God cares about places. God cares about places. And God, we know that then God doesn't just stop at Adam, that he goes to his side and, his, and he opens him up. And from his rib, he, he, he pulls out a woman and this woman becomes his wife. Her name means the mother of all living. And we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, very familiar passage of scripture for us. Genesis 1, verse 28 says this. God blessed them, and he said what? Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves upon the face of the earth. So then what happens? Yes, he created places for everything to have its uh, rule and domain, but after he creates man, he then elevates him and says, you have dominion over the skies, you have dominion over the fish of the sea, and you have dominion over the land animals. And so man becomes the pinnacle of his creation, and man has utter supreme rule, and he tells him to go out, to be fruitful, increase in number, you're going to rule the earth. But where is the man located? He's located in Eden. And so what's important to see is that God knows that man cannot just be fruitful and multiply, subdue, if man does not first have a place called home. And so it's dangerous when we want to subdue and we want to rule and we want to make moves when we ourselves first don't have a home. So Eden means delight. It means paradise. When you get into the Hebrew, it actually means spot. There's a, there's a spot. There's a place. We sang today that there's what? Make me a what? An open space. It's a, it's a space. It's a space. It's a spot that, that the heavens are opened and the presence of God is there. And so when you look at Eden, Eden is not just a garden. It's actually, hear me, heaven on earth. And there's no sin at the moment. There's no contamination. There's no, there's no veils that Adam is trying to look past. Adam doesn't have to pray for five hours to get into the presence of God. Eve doesn't have to fast for 40 days and 40 nights so that the spirit of God, the Bible tells us this, that God uh, was walking in the cool of the day with them. What we press so hard to get into, Adam and Eve woke up into every single day. It was a spot of delight. It was a place of God's presence, and it was open. And so from that place, that, that is where God places man in creation. Here's something about Genesis in the first two pages of the Bible. Everything that you see in Genesis, all the good stuff until you get to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man, that is God's desire for his creation. And if you read the first two pages of the Bible and you read the last two pages of the Bible, all God is trying to do is to bring back to, this is why when you die, you say you want to go where? But God's trying to bring you back to Eden. He's trying to bring you back to that place where there is no sin, where there, he, that's why he talks about wiping away every tear. And so we, we're going to get there, but okay. But God tells Adam and Eve, God tells Adam, the day that you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
you're surely going to die. And so we also see that there's a test even in the place of presence. There's, there's even a test in the place of presence. And so there's a lot that we could go into there. We're not going to do that. But Adam and Eve fall, and in their disobedience, God looks as he comes in the cool of the day. It says the voice of the Lord was walking in the cool of the day. And he says, Adam, where are you? Where art thou? Now, where was Adam? In, in Eden, at the top of the holy mountain there with the tree of life. What was next to the tree of life? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's right there. The test is right at the center of God's presence. So, so, yeah, you can draw and get us close to the presence of God. It does not eliminate the test. There's, there's, a, there's a test to keep you there. There's, there's even a test to keep you there. And so when God says, Adam, where are you? Adam is literally standing between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why does God ask Adam, where is he, if God placed him there? It's because now Adam spiritually disconnected from the place that he's standing in. And so he's now physically in Eden, but spiritually not. And so when God says, Adam, where, are, where did you go, boy? It's like when you look at someone that said, I know you're here, but you're not really here. Your body's here, but your mind is not here. Your body's here, but your heart is not here. Sometimes that's us in church. You're here, but you're really not here. And so God says, Adam, where are you? You are not in the last state. You are not in the last mind that I left you. And then Adam's like, oh, the woman that you gave me, she... I mean, just a few verses ago, he was like, bone in my bone, flesh in my flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined together with his wife. My man got theological all about it. And all of a sudden, the woman that you gave me, her. Why does he respond in that way? Because he does not have the mind that he just had. So when you don't have the mind that God puts you in, all of a sudden, you will go from theological to carnal. And so he, he a wreck, he blames her, and then the woman blames the serpent that you made, God. And it's just, and so look what happens. I want us to see this. Well, man spiritually is not in the place where he needs to be connected, where he finds peace, nourishment. Then he no longer can live in the place Spiritual place. If man loses the mind of God, if man says, you know what, I'm not going to choose God's wisdom, I'm going to choose wisdom for myself, and I'm going to dictate what is good and evil for myself, then you know what God does? God will take man out of the place. Why? Because God cannot afford for man now to destroy that place. Man connected to God in his presence will Keep and maintain that place. When we read scripture, we also learn this, that God had put him there to work it. Don't, don't miss that. He was there to work it. He was there, in other words, to maintain it and to make sure that it will continue to function as God created it. That is man's calling. That is a part of his commission. And if man, listen, if man can maintain it, if woman, to, and, and, and what does God say? It's not good for man to be, to be alone. And so he gives him a helper. He gives him a co 
uh, uh, CEO of the company to manage and to make sure that it maintains. It maintains its integrity. It maintains its power. It maintains its influence. It maintains its glory. The garden was glorious. And so men and women are put there to work it, what? To maintain the glory. But if man is not connected to glorious God, then man will destroy everything his father gave him. And as an act of, look at this, mercy, not just justice, not just punishment, but as an act of mercy to preserve the place, then God has to take him out momentarily. And so now Adam and Eve are removed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In other words, man has now just made himself God. He's not, he's not God. Don't think that's implying that he's equivalent to God. It's just, it's just saying man has made himself want to be God. He has chosen his own wisdom. He thinks he knows right and wrong. He's going to dictate what good and evil is, but it's only me and my wisdom that I know what's good and not good for man. He goes, now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. He's like, I got to get him out of here because his mind is a mess. And the worst thing that could happen is while his mind is a mess, he goes now and turns to the tree of life that he didn't pick the first time and in his mess eats that and now is stuck, trapped for eternity in sin. And so God has to take him out of the place so he doesn't trap himself and God has to take him out of the place so he doesn't wreck the garden. I guarantee you, it only been a couple of weeks before the, the streams would have started to dry. He would have forgot to water the, the trees. He wouldn't have worked the ground because in his sin, man is a wreck. And in our sin, we don't think about others. We don't think about the planet. We don't think about anything that God's given to us. We are careless. We are, uh, 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 we are, we are mad and we are inclined to ourselves and ourselves alone. And so as an act of mercy, God said, I'm going to take you out before you trap and mess yourself up more. And I'm going to take you out before you ruin it for everybody. Verse 24, look at verse 23. Therefore, God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, at, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed what? The cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They got cherubim angels here. This is not a regular garden. And so when man loses his place of presence, his home, his safe place, before man ruins everything, God will exile him, not to just punish him, but out of love and mercy, take him out before he breaks it, and in exile, in that place, humble man, humble him, bring him to repentance, exile God uses, you're going to see, if you read scriptures and you look at the whole story that we don't like to read, that Old Testament, you read that, you're going to see how God, he, he, intended, he intended exile to bring man humbly to his knees, into repentance, so look, so he could bring him back into Eden. So God doesn't punish you to cut you off. He chastises you as a son or a daughter to bring you back home. He doesn't punish you to cut you off, but he chastises us 
to humble us, to bring us to repentance so that he can bring us right back home. God always has a place for his people. Can we just relate as a church, dwelling place church, that some of us might say, oh, what is God doing? He kicked us out of the building. Now, I want to suggest that part of the exile was God not cutting us off, but it was God cutting us, exiling us, to bring us to repentance, to humble us. So that then he could bring us back home. We relate to these stories so much as a church. But God will use the exile before we just destroy it all. In other words, I put you in this place, but now your character cannot hold you in this place. And before you destroy all the people that I'm going to bring to this place, I need to take you out, humble you, bring you to a place in my presence, bring you into Eden here, and then when I got you there, then I'll bring you back here. And so we realized that the call wasn't for man just to stay in Eden. Eden was his home. But the calling in Genesis 1.28 was God bless and be fruitful and multiply. But man can only be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and have dominion over there is if he has a place in God's presence first. So many of us want to reach the world. Many of us want to go to the nations. Many of us want to do this. Many of us want to go over there. Many of us want to fix somebody else's home. Many of us got good advice for everybody else and their mama. And you are trying to spread throughout the Middle East, but you yourself are not even living in Eden. And so you can't go to the four ends of the earth and you can't have ministerial. And, and, and this is the problem with our generation. This is what, I'm scared of super spiritual people, super spiritual people who, who know how to. And we've been talking about this in our series and we did it in our Bible series. I'm scared of prophets that have no love. The Bible says those are resounding, those are symbols, clashing symbols. I'm, I'm scared of people who do spiritual. Speak in tongues but have no self-control when it comes to gossip. I'm scared of leaders that are tyrants. I'm scared of leaders that are prideful, that they, they become God to the people. And so you know what happens when, when, when we lose our love and we lose all the fruit of the Spirit and we're trying to manifest gifts of the Spirit? That's dangerous. That's, that's very dangerous when we have... Powerful moves of God here in church. But then when you go back to our homes, the fruit has fallen off the trees. The, the roots are dry. There's no peace in the house. What, what is the point of this? If your house is, is, is dark, there's no light there. What is the, what is the point of, of, of coming here and being in the rivers of his presence, but there's deep waters with your family and with your marriage and with your home and everyone around. That's the, look, Adam and Eve were supposed to bring those rivers and to subdue and to fill and to have and, 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 to, and to. The only way Adam was able to do that and Eve able to do that in the world is that it was flowing from Eden. But if you cut yourself off from Eden, then there are no rivers to bring to the rest of the world. If you cut yourself off from the place of delight that is fruitful, where you get your nourishment, if you cut yourself off from the place where you get peace with God, how in the world are you going to be cut from the vine and think you can bear fruit to the rest of the world? And so I believe it was important. I believe it was necessary for God to cut us off 
from our location. There were things that God needed to do with us to connect us back to his vine and back to what Eden, his presence. It's so crazy how we left the bigger building and we left the stage and we left the lights and we left, you know, the, the, the place where, where every week we would have maybe five different guests from all around the world just because of where we were positioned. We didn't even have to work for those. People would be like, I'm here traveling from New Zealand. I'm here from Africa. I'm here from Egypt. I'm here from, oh, I'm here from, all, from, Inc., from the UK. I'm here from all these places. And they were at there. They came to see Mickey Mouse, but then they get to experience God. We never anticipated that we would be a place that could reach the nations by not going to them. But God was literally bringing people into our Eden. But the problem is if they come into our Eden and Eden's a wreck because we didn't maintain it. And more than maintaining, the only way to maintain Eden is if you stay connected to God. And so Adam loses that place with God and God said, no, you can't stay here no more. And he exiles him. I believe part of our relocation was God's love, mercy towards us. So we could reconnect back to his presence, reconnect back to God, so that then he could bring us back into Eden, back into our old location, so that then we could have the proper influence to subdue and take territory. All right, I got to land this plane, and I read the first four verses. Online host, you guys are in for a treat. Disregard the rest. I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to rush to the future right now. God, help me. Pray for me right now. God always has a place for his people. God's people need a spiritual home of his presence in order for them to fulfill their calling in the world. If we disconnect from the presence, even if we go out, we won't reach. So man has to be in his presence, has to have a home, has to have a safe place, has to have an Eden. Genesis chapters 3 through 11 show us what happens when man is loose in the world, disconnected from the presence of God. Man is filled with wickedness. It gets to the point that God repents that he even made man. And so this is why we have the story of the flood. The flood is God saying, you... You know what God does? He hides Eden. Eden is hidden. The flood did not wipe out Eden because Eden is not just physical. It's spiritual. It's where heaven and earth. And so he casts man out so man doesn't go back in there until he's ready. Until he's ready. Oh, my God. The Bible's so good. Until he is ready. And so Eden is, is, is hidden. Look at this. It's hidden by God, but also to the sin our sin and, 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 uh, and our disobedience has also, think of a windshield with mud trying to drive or think of driving in heavy rain. We were coming back from St. Augustine last night and Pastor Tiny, we're on the 95 South going out and it was the, the, the winds were picking up there before they got over here. There was lightning rain, a truck in front of us throwing. I'm like, you, you could barely see, barely see. Well, that, think of that mud, hay, all, that, all that gunk and muck on your, on your windshields trying to drive. That's how man lives when he's disconnected from God and he's in his sin and in his disobedience. In other words, there's a veiling between him and reality. He can't see what's really out there because why? There's mud on the windshield. The Bible talks about this theme too, that we're veiled right now. There's a veil between us and God. In the Garden of Eden, there was no veil because there was no sin. The minute that man disobeyed, all of a sudden a veil goes up. 
man is hiding behind the veil. God kicks him out and puts angels there so man cannot just freely walk into the presence of God in his sin. This is the whole purpose of the law and the Levitical priesthood, how to make an unholy people clean again so that then they can go past the veil in the tabernacle and step into before the Ark of the Covenant, covenant where the presence of God is. He told Moses, there at the cover, at the mercy seat where the two cherubim angels are, he said this, there is where I'm going to meet you. So how does a nation who's just been 400 years in bondage, full of idolatrous worship, don't even know where God is from up or down, all they have is the influence of their culture, the Egyptian culture, have no idea. All they have is a story. All they have is a story. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why when Moses appears before the burning bush and he says, who am I going to tell the people that you are? There's a thousand gods. There's a thousand Elohims up in Egypt. He says, my name is the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am one. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have heard your cry, and I'm going to send you as a deliverer to go and get the people out. Why? Out of what? To get them past the veil. They're in the mud. And then there's a whole wilderness story where God needs to cleanse them before they step behind the veil and back into a promised land. And he told Abraham this. He showed him in Genesis chapter 15, he, uh, Genesis chapter 12, he actually tells him, I'm going to bless you, make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And in you, all the because of you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So in other words, he tells Abraham, I got a blessing over you, uh, but, but, but I'm actually going to multiply your generations. In Genesis chapter 12, he tells him, it starts out with this, I need you to leave your father's house. How many people remember that? I need you to leave your father's house in your country and go to a place that I'm showing you. Do you know what he shows him? Abraham, if you read Genesis chapter 12, after he tells him, bless you and all that good stuff like that, he takes him right into Canaan. Significant. You as a, you're a Christian, you, we need to know what Canaan is. He takes him into Canaan and you know what he tells him? He goes, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, not to you. We got work. There's going to be a journey. There's, there's going to be a lot of gunk on the windshield. But I'm telling you, he brings him into Canaan so his feet can touch it. So the seed that is in his loins can spiritually feel it and says, I'm going to give you this land. Because of a famine, he ends up having to flee to Egypt. You better know what Egypt is in your Bible too. It's very symbolic here, people. But then 400 years later, the Hebrews end up there through Joseph and his brothers. Long story. We can't go there. <laughs> right? Moses pulls them out. But he tells them this in Genesis 3. He says, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. This is why when we pray, we present people who are in pain. I, I, I try to do that even before we start so that you know that when you're sitting in here, God hears your cry and knows your sorrows. Yo, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And look at this. And to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. Land. God cares about places. God cares about places. To a land flowing with milk and honey. This does not mean that there was a super Walmart and the only two items in there were milk on the left and honey on the right. You know what milk and honey mean? It means that there are bees in the land. And if you have bees in the land, it means that they are doing their job to, to fertilize and do what they need to do. 
If there's milk in the land, that means that what? That there's livestock. There are cows that are taking care. In other words, he says, there is an Eden that I have for you, and I'm promising you it's a good and spacious land. It's delightful. It is fruitful. That's what that implies. Oh, my goodness. What time? Okay. I got 11 minutes. Let's go. And so in their journey from, from here, there's a veiling of sin and craziness, and, and God has them in the wilderness to sanctify them and to separate them. Okay? That's what Leviticus is about. They're doing rituals. They're doing sacrifices. And the book is about purification. I know it makes no sense when this person does that, then they're unpurified. And they got to do, do this for seven days so that they could be pure again and then come back in. I know it's a lot. But if you could capture the, the main themes of the book, it makes sense. It's how does a people who have been contaminated with idolatry in their minds, how does that people get to step into God's presence? We're not, remember, God kicked Adam and Eve out. Why? Because they lost the place of their presence here. And so also, the, the, the children of Israel come out of Egypt. They're, they're not together here. They're just delivered, but they're not set free yet. They're delivered physically, but, but spiritually minded, they're slaves still. This is why when they got out there and they didn't see water, I mean, you just saw God open up a sea for you. You just saw him rain down on Egypt. The minute there's no water for 30 minutes, you're like, we should have just died. And you should have just left us in Egypt where we had water and we ate pots of meat. You just saw God, and you can't go 30 minutes without, okay? So they're, 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 they're free physically, but, they're, but they're, 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 spiritually they're dead. And it takes 40 years to bring them back to consciousness and the spirit. But the beautiful thing is that the land was flowing there. It was, it was, it was eaten for them. Now, long story short, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. It's Joshua who takes them in. They get in there, and they have to possess the land. They have to march around a, build, a, a, a city whose walls are big, and then they get to shout, and the walls come down. I don't want you to think that's a template for how you fight all your battles either. Because there's one story where they walked and walls fell down. There's hundreds of where the men went to war and fought with swords. So not every battle you win it the same way. You got to listen to what God is saying in the moment. That's another sermon. But they get in there. The people, even when they get in the land, instead of God being their king, they demand to get a king like all the other nations. Oh, my goodness, right? Like, come on, guys. And God says, okay, you want a king? Here, I'm going to give you what you asked for. He even has the prophet saying, you come, put oil on the guy. And the guy still is terrible, King Saul. God rejects him. He's disobedient. He does things he's not supposed to. Then God says, I'm looking for someone. I'm going to rise up someone else. I have rejected you. He looks for a man after his own heart. He gets this little boy out in the field, shepherd boy. We know him as King David, the greatest king of all of Israel. But he was a warrior. He had to fight. He had to fight, fight, fight to survive. With a little bit of men, he had to fight against this person. Fighting. He was fighting Philistines. He was fighting Saul's men. It was crazy. Crazy. But eventually he gets to, he gets to the place of the kingdom. 
He builds up his empire, and people are singing songs about David, this David, that. David is a wonderful story. King David is like, oh, my God, go to Israel. King David, he's, everybody, he's everything to everybody, okay? And so David builds up his own house, and it's beautiful. He has cedar everywhere. His kingdom's established. But David realizes, and we did this in a Bible study, me and Josh, we talked about bringing back God's presence, where David realizes, he's like, man, my house is built up. He's like, how am I? I think it's a good idea we bring the ark back, guys. What you say? You mean to tell me they try to have God's kingdom without his ark? Think of this. What does the ark symbolize? His presence. David is smart. He knows I can't be in this Eden if we are disconnected from the presence. This is my kingdom's not going to last long. And so it's David who sends out for the ark. He gets it wrong the first time. Go watch the Bible study. He gets it right the second time. They bring it back properly, and now the ark is there. This is the, 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 the epitome of God's presence right there. It's back in Zion. It's back in the city of David. But then David says, okay, we got the ark back. Later on in Chronicles, you see that David says, I want to build the temple now. Now, the tabernacle was a shadow. The tabernacle was this little tent thing that they set up, broke down while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. It was only a type. It, it, the, the wall was made out of white curtains. The ceiling on the other one was made out of badger skins dye red. I mean, it was glorious in that it was humbly made. They took it from whatever they got out of Egypt, the, you know, the, the, the possessions that they, that they were able to take with them. But, but it's different because now all these years later, Israel is wealthy and they've been in the land and they have won victories and they have spoils and they build up their own kingdom. So now their resources, resources are more than abundantly, abundance. They, they work for them. And so David says, let me build a temple. And God says, no. He tells David, he appears to him and says, you don't got to build me a temple. He goes, don't you remember? I never asked any of the, you know, I never asked anyone to build me a temple. It's really about my presence. That's more important, David. He goes, but I know it's your desire to build me a house. You brought the ark back. Good job, boy. He goes, but also, you know what? You're a warrior. You're a man of war. I also need the person that's going to build this to be a man of peace. You're a warrior how I had you. Hey, let me tell you, it's okay. We have different roles, different jobs. God didn't, you know, rebuke him for it, but he says, you've been a man of war. You've been a man of bloodshed. You brought the ark back. Don't worry. Yes, you're my guy. But I need a man of peace to build this. And, I, and, and, and you know what? I'm going to, through your loins, through your seed, I'm going to raise up a man. I'm going to raise up another king. And that one, someone in your household, your son will actually build my house. And this is where we get Solomon. Solomon comes, and he's the one who actually builds up the temple of God. It takes him seven years. Seven is very symbolic. Seven, another, uh, uh, you know, number of completion. It took God seven days to do everything, and he finished the work. It took Solomon seven years. But he tells Solomon, after the temple was built, guys got to be obedient. You guys got to, you know, be, you got to remain in my presence. Because if you don't, if you don't, look at this. First uh, Kings chapter nine. I'm going to actually go to verse six. Sorry, online host. But verse six, but if you, and this is him talking to Solomon. After the temple is dedicated, I mean, this thing is massive. The tabernacle was one glory. Whew, when you got to Solomon's temple, it went from glory to like, five times the glory there's no white sheets this time i mean you got oh my goodness majestic what he did it's got like three floors i mean you had two cherubims in the first one some uncle i mean this thing he actually had there was there was olive trees things all over like there was, it was just decorated you know what he decorated like like eden 
the temple is really paradise. It's Eden. He makes this house, but look what God says. Uh, second, it's at First Kings chapter nine. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, verse 7, then I will cut off Israel from the land. You see? It stays the same. Like, yes, you built this whole house and this is wonderful. I'm going to be here. But if you get disconnected from my presence, then I have to do the same thing that I did to Adam and I have to cut you out and exile you. So this is the forewarning. He goes, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken Yahweh, their Elohim, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That, that is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Do you think the people remain in his presence? Go read Chronicles. Go read the Kings. Sad story. Only a couple of kings throughout their history actually did well and, and God's presence was good. The rest of it was a struggle fight, disobedience, oh my goodness, idolatry, civil wars break out, the kingdom gets divided north and south. Talk about a mess. Kings doing all wild stuff, just a mess. The people are a wreck. And you know what? God sends prophets like Amos, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk. They don't listen, they don't listen to none of these prophets. They don't listen to Jeremiah. You know what Jeremiah prophesies? He literally prophesies. God is going to come in and he's going to use the Babylonians as, as, as God's servant. God's going to use the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, that crazy guy. He's going to use them as his servant to get you out. And, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonians. And this is, uh, the Syrians actually came in first to the north. And the ten tribes that were actually in the northern kingdom obliterated them off the face of the earth. You only have Judah and Benjamin in the south. Those, those tribes are gone. Go, go just search this. They're like the gone tribes. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar comes into the southern kingdom as Jeremiah prophesied, but Jeremiah prophesied this. Uh, he says, verse 10 of Jeremiah 25, I will, banish them, I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bri bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, a wasteland just like the earth was before God touched it. And, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years is symbolic of a whole generation. One, he goes, I'm going to banish you for one whole generation. Some of you are going to die in those 70 years. The ones that are already 70 might die in these next 70 years. He banishes them out. But they're told if they will repent, then God will bring them back. He uses the exile to humble them. God cares about a place. And so what happens to the Babylonians after the 70 years? God uses the Persian Empire under King Cyrus to come in. He overthrows Babylon, and he inherits these exiles who are in Babylon. But you know what happens? God uses. He fulfills the word of Jeremiah that they're going to be here for 70 years, but after that they're going to get to go back home. He uses King Cyrus and uses him. And you know what? <laughs> it's like the spirit of the Lord all over this guy. 
Ezra chapter 1. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. We have them as two books, and the, and the Hebrew scriptures are just one book. Ezra 1 says this, In the first year of, king of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. The Bible's nasty, y'all. Yahweh moved the heart. Look, Yahweh moves the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. Because once a king put it in writing, now there's, I mean, the writings were kept. These things were, were their records. They didn't have YouTube, Instagram. They didn't have camcorders and cameras so that they could go and play the tape back. No, they had, they had kingdom records, and they were put in treasuries and, and places. So in the records, they were able to pull this up later on. It's a great story. I don't have time. But um, this, is what king, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, he, what? King of Persia says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, he says, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me. Cyrus all of a sudden has this revelation. He enters into the presence of God and he feels that God has appointed him to build the temple and build back. He says, the temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, and the Elohim who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Gee. He literally was speaking he said God has commissioned him to build the temple. And you know what, Jewish people who are here? If you want to help, go ahead. <laughs> Wait a minute. They were the people that really were supposed to be building it. But something happened in his heart that he felt he was the one commissioned to build their temple and let them return back to build up the God of the Hebrews. So long story short, they go back. We read about Zerubbabel, right? And Joshua the priest, they go back into the land to rebuild. And some of the enemies that were still there in the territory, it's always a fight, man. There's always going to be a fight. Even when you get into the place of presence, you got to possess it. When they get in there, the, the enemies or some people who were there in the land while they were out of the land, who moved into the land in their absence, and people from around, when they see that the exiles are going back, you know how many exiles went back? 43,000. Go back under the Persian rule of Cyrus, he writes a decree in a letter. They get to go back to rebuild Jerusalem and build the temple. When they get back there, as Zerubbabel starts to go to build the temple and Joshua the priest goes with him and they're going to build this thing, the people, the enemies there say, hey, we want to help you build. You know what Zerubbabel is? Very anticlimactic. Very anticlimactic. In the sense that when they go to rebuild, the enemies say, we want to help you build your temple. This is the same. It's like God was moving on their hearts in that moment. Just like how Cyrus, he was, a, you know, heathen, you know, from the outside, but God moved his heart. He felt to build it, and he, he, he lets them go out. But then when they get there, there's other people that God is stirring their hearts, their enemies. And then you know what Zerubbabel and the priest said? No, you, can't, you have no business with this. I think that was a bad move. Because why? The promise to Abraham is that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by you. And now you have the nations of the earth who were your enemies. Their hearts are open to help you build what God is doing and you reject them. So you know what happens? Now their hearts get hard and then they say, you know what? Oh, you don't want us to help? They go back 
and they say word to uh, uh, at, at this time, as time has passed by, is no longer King Cyrus, it's King Artaxerxes, and they go back and they tell him, you're going to let these Jews, these exiles build? If you check their records, these people have been nothing but trouble to all the nations around them. They're wicked. They do all of this. And Artaxerxes is like, what? They say, yeah, if you let him rebuild, they're not going to stay faithful under Persian rule. They're not going to pay you taxes. They're going to destroy this land. Check their, check their records. And you know what Artaxerxes does? He goes back into the records. He's like, you know what? You're right. These people have been trouble to all the nations around here. And you know what he does? He issues a decree for the work to, for the work to stop. And so you know what Zerubbabel and Joshua end up doing? They stop. The only thing they got to do was when they got there, they built an altar, just like Abraham did when he got to Canaan. He actually gets to Canaan. He builds an altar, but then he has to leave because of a famine. So an altar comes into play as a theme in the Bible. So when they get there, the first thing he builds is an altar of sacrifice, rejoicing. And it says some of the people who were exiles, who, who saw the first temple, it says when after that he builds an altar, they do sacrifices, they do this big party, then they lay the foundations of the temple. When that happens, all the young people, the ones that were born over there, people like Zerubbabel, his name literally means planted in Babylon. He comes over, and, and so when they see the temple, uh, not, the, not the whole temple, but they got the altar, they get to praise, they build the foundation, they have this big celebration, like, yay, we laid the foundation of the temple. And it says the young ones are like, yes, this is great. But the people who saw the old temple actually cry. You know why they cried? Because it was nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. You got one generation that's like, this is pathetic. And the other generation who's like, man, I didn't even see the other one. I was born over in Babylon, but I'm just glad to be back home. And uh, yeah, let's build this thing. They're celebrating. It says that, they're, that, the, the, that the, the praises, the shouts of joy mixed with the cries, you couldn't even distinguish the difference. But then they raised opposition and Zerubbabel and Joshua stopped building. And so you know what they end up doing? Okay, we're not going to build this temple. We're still in the land. You know what they start doing? All right, I'm going to go make my own house. I'm going to just start. I'll just build my own house then. And so they get in the land. They start building and working on their own houses. And then all of a sudden, God speaks from heaven a minor word to Haggai. Look, I brought us back up to speed. I brought us from, we went back to the future. Haggai, if you read the book of Haggai, the prophet, there's four words of encouragement to that generation, to Zerubbabel. And that's why he confronts them in Haggai chapter 1 that we read. He says, you guys are living in your paneled houses while the temple of the Lord is in ruins. Now you guys understand the context. That, that's... Because why? We think that when there's opposition, then it's not God. We think when there's opposition, we need to stop. But even the place of presence needs to be maintained and needs to be built up. Remember, God, God had Eden for Adam. It was built up because no one touched it before God. But even when Adam gets there, he's commissioned not just to go out, but to maintain the garden. He has to work from home and then work outside and then come back to home and maintain. There was always a home place for Adam. So now you got years of back and forth at this point. When they come back, they need to build back the home that God has preserved for them. They have to work in this opposition. They have to have faith, but they stop. Dwelling Place Church, why do I say this story relates to us too? Because we feel that God has a place for us over on 192. 
And we cannot think that a promise given to us is a promise handed to us and there's no rebuilding. When we go back there, there needs to be a rebuilding. We can't just go in there as is and say, oh, this is how God gave it to us, so we're just going to keep it like that. It cannot remain the same temple that it was. We have to, with all of our might, with all of our responsibility, with all our might, that, that will become our home. And if we say we want to reach the world and reach the streets, we have to take care of our home as God gives it to us. And so this is not going to be easy. It's going to be challenges. We're going to need your help. We're going to need your hands. We're going to need your resources. They built it with their gold and with their silver and whatever anybody else contributed to them. And I believe God's going to bless us. Cyrus said, hey, give them gold, give them silver. He actually took, when, ba- when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon went in there, they burned down the whole city. They burned down the temple. He took all the, all, the, all the temple items and he brought them to the house of his gods. Cyrus allowed them to release that and bring it back. Give them gold, give them silver. Let them have, I believe God's going to bless us through other people as we go on this journey. But we also have to bring what we have. You can't sit there with a resource in your pocket praying for God to move someone else's heart and move on our behalf. Oh, I'm just going to pray that someone else comes by and rings your doorbell and gives you $50,000 to build a temple. Not if you have $50 in your pocket, but you won't release it because you don't trust God. God's not going to move in that way. So everyone that says the Dwelling Place Church is their church, there are people that associate with a church because it's cool. There are people that associate with a church because this, is, this, this feels good. I know the difference of those people after 11 years. Trust me. I know the difference. I'm not going to look at nobody. <laughs> I'm not saying that you're here or online. But we know the difference of people who associate to a church because it feels good. But someone who's really committed to a specific house of the Lord is going to say yes in good times and yes in bad times. And that's why it's okay for people to come and for people to go. It's all good. It's all good. I don't cry that much anymore when people say it's time for me to go. I cried my brains out throughout all the years. But God has proven to be faithful every year. He's proven to maintain. He's proven to build up new people. Here putting curses on the church. I'm just saying here if you're planting discord. I'm just, if you got bitterness and resentment in your heart. I'm just saying if you don't trust the church no more. Here's a good opportunity for God to pick you up and plant you eastward somewhere else. It's okay. I'm not mad about it. I'm just saying. It's a good time for everybody to make their moves and put their... I end with this. In Haggai chapter 2, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Remember, because if you read Ezra, go and get into like chapters 3, 4, you see that the foundation is laid, and that's when some rejoice, others cry. And so look, Haggai, if you read Ezra, it, it mentions Haggai. He's the prophet. The books line up. This is incredible. So in Haggai chapter 2, he's making references to what you will have to read in Ezra. If you don't read Ezra, you don't even know what's going on here. You got to study your Bible. You can't be the person, the YouTube disciple. You can't be the YouTube disciple unless you're using YouTube to help you study the Bible, not just listen to sermon after sermon after sermon. You got to study how to study the Bible. New tip of the year. Study how to study the Bible. Don't just listen to the Bible what people have studied for themselves. 
Be like the Bereans that when the pastors went in there and they preached, they said, okay, this is awesome, but we're going to sit here and test. And we're going to check with the scriptures and make sure that these apostles ain't jokers coming to town. Be like the noble Bereans. So everything that I'm telling you, you got to just read this week, Genesis all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> check it. Check what I said to you. There, you got you a gotta plan for the rest of the year. Go check this throughout the year. But who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? We know those guys were crying. How do you see it now? They were, ah. he goes, it is nothing in your eyes. I know that. I know half of you are looking at this and saying, you know what? This is really nothing. That's probably how some people thought. When we said we're buying the old building, some of us were like, yeah. Some people were like, that old thing? I've, I've been there before. I know there's nothing glorious about that. Turn on the lights. Now I know why they got the lights dim in that place. I know why. I seen those rain buckets. I seen, I seen that hole in that men's bathroom. And if I'm honest, I saw mold in the corner somewhere. So we going back there? There ain't nothing beautiful about that foundation. We know it's there. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. As you hear Zerubbabel, is there, the, he's talking to the remnant. The remnant. Be strong, remnant. You guys, some of you have come from that building. Maybe some of you met us out in the wilderness. When we go back, the people who met us out in the wilderness, they might be like, wow, this is awesome. We got a bigger building. But the people who were with us might be like, yeah, I've been in this place before. But look, there's a word. There's a word for you guys. For you. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Oh, my God. Look at this. Like, yeah, work, work. That's what God told Adam in Eden. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Look, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I want the church, the dwelling place church to know. I know some of us are crazy. I know some of us got work to do. But the spirit of the Lord remains in our midst. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry ground. In other words, I'm going to shake all of the dimensions. I'm going to shake I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to shake, shake the seas. And remember, he, he, he. He put those places and then he filled it, but then he gave it all back to humanity, back to Adam. He says, I'm going to shake those places and I will fill. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be the greater, shall be greater than the former. From glory to glory. You had a tabernacle, then I gave you a temple. You did okay in Babylon with Daniel, but I'm bringing you back to your home, and I promise you there's going to be a glory in that place. God has a place, listen now, God has a place for man, and it's called his glory. Remember I tell you that God cares about places? You know what's the place that God cares about? His glory. The temple, the ark are only symbols of that. 
You don't worship the ark and you don't worship the temple. That's why even when we get to the church, and I've been telling people this too, you know what, we're going to go in there and we're going to work and we're going to build it up. We're not going to leave it the same. Why? Because it is God's house and it's a symbol of his glory. And if it's a symbol of his glory, it better be built up. I'm not going to have you come into my church and we got roaches crawling around, mold in the bathroom. No, no, no. We're going to invest because it's God's house. But we also know it's a symbol. And once we have, once we have it built up, you know what? Then we forget about it. After we build it up, then we forget about the building and we realize that we only built it because it's to honor his glory. And so if we honor it once, we're good. Then we can honor him, his presence. Because we, 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 you know what? People only get impressed by your building the first time they walk in. And if they walk in and the first time they came in, like, oh, this is dark. I see something over there I don't like. You know what? Once they meet his glory by the end of the service, they could care less about the hole in the bathroom. But we're going to fix it up one time we're going to invest in it one time and then after that it's about glory to glory it's about glory to glory it's about family to family it's about people to people i'm gonna finish this how i want to why that has to become our safe place that has to be our place of rest God didn't create man to be nomads. He didn't create him to be an exile. When you're in exile, it's only symbolic that you stepped out of his presence and therefore you lost his, the place. But if you could get back into God's presence, he will bring you to the place. He trusts you there. And so you need to have a place of resting. We can't afford to be 40 years saying, Pastor Yvonne and Ed, do you got Sunday open, the camp meeting? That's okay, two years, but... I don't want to be 40 years later saying we're still raising funds for the church. I don't want to be driving a Challenger and Pastor Tanya has a Ford F-150 of our dreams. We move in by our old house. I don't want to have a house in the car. And then when I look, I'm still at the camp. And so if all of our houses are getting better and we're all starting to drive cars, and if we're still... There's a problem. I think the word of the Lord will come to us like it came to Haggai. How in the world are you living in your paneled houses, driving your nice cars? You got nice clothes. You've been everywhere in the world on vacation. But my house is in ruins. It means something when people look good, but God's house looks a mess. It shows us where our treasure is. And if the temple, if the church is a symbol of Eden, Eden better look like heaven. I can't have my home looking better than my church. It, because places do matter. And I want the church to be a refuge for you and for your family and for your children and for our community. And I'll tell you this, we'll never reach the world while we're nomads. We can't be carrying our tabernacle for 40 years. Eventually, we have to be able to get in there and build up the sanctuary and dedicate it like Solomon did so that the presence of God could fall and then we live as a people in his presence so that then when we go out, we can bring people in and they're coming into a place of refuge, coming into a place of healing. They're coming into a place where they find rest, coming into a place for their children. Our whole community can come. But if we treat it like trash and call it God's presence to the people, they're going to question our hearts. Oh, this is God's house for you? Oh, this is how? Okay. Moving along. First 
two pages of the Bible is not Hebrew cosmology of ancient old people. Genesis 1 is about creator God Elohim, who we now know as Yahweh, creating a place, a Eden, a spot, a space for his creation to have a home so then he could be commissioned to the world. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says this. This is now the end. Glorification. Then I saw, John having a revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Wait, he saw Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the bride. I know we and you call ourselves the bride, but here, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In this verse, Jerusalem is the bride, and the church is the husband. And it's coming down, and it's prepared. Just like he did in Genesis. He prepared the earth, and then he brought man into the earth. And God presented a beautifully working, functioning, fruitful paradise, and he brought that to Adam and Eve. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, for the old order things have passed away. You know how much God cares about places? That Jesus told the disciples, where I'm going, you can't come with me, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. You remember? I'm going to prepare a place for you. So in other words, when Adam lost it and then the veil came down, he hid Eden. He hid Eden from us. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. You know what God did? He went back into Eden and he started working it. He started building the temple there. There's another verse that Jesus is the light and he's the temple himself. Oh my goodness. So God said, God cares about places so much that you're not just going to walk into heaven then and then you have to fix it up. We ain't going to come in with our lights. Don't think in glory that we're going to bring in our lights and I'm going to bring in my altar. No. God's going to redo heaven. He's going to redo earth. The veil is going to be pulled back. And just like he did with Adam and Eve, he prepared the world and he brought them into the place. That's what God's doing for me and you. I go to prepare a place for you. Eden is being prepared for us. For those that trust in the Lord who give their lives to him. So church, from glory to glory. In the next couple of weeks, you'll be hearing more information about us and our journey and about our move. Right now, we're under negotiation still. We have a meeting with the building code. Y'all remember what that building was like? So, and now I'm having a meeting with cold people? We're not sure what's going to come out of that meeting. But whatever comes back, we have to remember the word of Haggai that says we can't stop building. If there's a word spoken over the place, no matter 
what the enemies or the discouragement says to stop us from building and moving forward. Dwelling Place Church, I want to tell you that we need to march forward because if God said that's the place, then we got to trust him. So keep our move in prayer. Our desire is to go from glory to glory. And yeah, you're welcome to to make that transition with us. I want to pray as we close. You can bow your heads if you like. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for this time. We thank you, Lord, for living word. We thank you for this house. We thank you for this Eden. We thank you for this place of delight. It has brought nourishment to us. Their love, not just their building, but their love. Their friendship, Lord. That is the delight. And our relationship is where we feel your presence, Lord. We just thank you for them. We pray, Father, that as they've been a blessing to us, Father, that you would bless them. Lord, you told Abraham that you would bless those who blessed him, Lord. So we just pray in the same faith, Lord, for those that have blessed us, Lord. Our desire is not to take advantage of people in order to get. But, Father, they have freely and with open arms blessed us. So we pray that you bless this house always. Bless Pastor Ed and Yvonne and their family and their children. We pray that they also, that you bless their home. That before they come here and before they come into their community, that their home be a resting place. That their home be a place of nourishment. That their home be a place of peace. That it be a place of your glory. That it be a place, Lord God, of love, happiness, Lord God, and good things, Father. So that they could be filled and they could be rejuvenated in their secret place, in their home, in their privacy, Lord God. Bless that home first so that this home that that could spread, the life in their home could spread into the life of this church, Father. And we pray that rivers of living water will flow in this place as it flowed from the Garden of Eden, Lord God, throughout, Father. Father, we pray for their congregation, for their people, Lord God, that they will continue to be, uh, to be uh, connected to you and connected to their pastors and their leaders and the vision of this church, Father. We know how important it is to have helpers and people with a, with a servant's heart to lead and to build up and volunteer. So, Father, we pray for all of them, Lord God. Bless the work of their hands, and we also pray and believe that you're able to expand their territory as well. We pray for the Dwelling Place Church, all of our pastors and our leaders and our congregation, the families, the children, the men, the women, the you, Father. Father, I thank you for the remnant that is here. Not everyone has made it to this point, Father. I trust that we're already with the remnant. So, Father, I pray that we will go to the hills and we will get the wood, that we will do the work, Father, as you bring us back into the land. So I pray that you open our hearts, Lord God. We're going to need people, Lord God. We're going to need their physical strength. We're going to need financial, Lord God, uh, donations, Lord God. So I pray, Lord God, that you will move our hearts. And that, Father, as we continue going from glory to glory, as we continue to follow your cloud, we pray, Father, that during hard times, difficult times, opposition, just like the, just like the children of Israel, when they went back and they faced that opposition as Zerubbabel and Joshua faced it, Lord God. Father, where they stopped, I pray that we will continue, Lord God, that we will continue and we will trust, Lord God. God, that whatever the opposition is, Father, we already believe in the word that you have spoken to us, Lord, and that we will push forward despite it. So, Father, we trust you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us more, most and above all things, Lord, to remain in your presence, Lord God. For us to be connected to the vine. We are the, we, we, I mean, well, we are the branches. You are the vine, Lord God. Help us to bear fruit as we remain in your presence. So, Father, we just thank you once again. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment. We also pray that you would just uh, guide us safely home. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. God bless you. Living Word Church, Dwelling Place Church.